I think so many of us are just so repressed when it comes to actually being able to feel our own pleasure. Like that's the forbidden. And it's like, what kind of socialization makes you feel that this body of yours that's been wired for pleasure is actually not allowed to have any pleasure? Like something got broken along the way. This is Healing Justice Podcast, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week we are talking about pleasure activism, the politics of feeling good with Adrienne Marie Brown and Amita Swatin. We talk about Adrienne's new book, which is a collection of her writing and so many contributors, including Amita. We are learning together what pleasure has to do with our movements, talking about pleasure after childhood sexual abuse, and other experiences of harm. This conversation feels really important to me because I feel really deeply what Adrian calls activist culture's commitment to suffering. And I also feel in myself some shared suspicions that our listeners communicated to us through Instagram at Healing Justice. Over the past week, we were asking, what questions do you have about pleasure activism? And many of our listeners wrote in with um, patterns of questions that have to do with, well, if I begin to connect more to pleasure, will I lose commitment to the work? Will addiction surface if we go into what feels good? You know, is that just a bottomless pit? Will we become distracted from what we actually need to do? And so I ask Adrian about this in the episode and invite you to join me in listening to the answer and undoing some of those layers of assumptions. This episode is really relevant to your work if you want to build organizations and movements that feel alive and are made up of people who are fulfilled and alive. It's also relevant if you're on a healing journey in your own life, especially after abuse. As Adrian says, we have to make justice the most pleasurable experience that humans can have. So let me tell you about these two guests. Adrian Marie Brown is a writer, a sci-fi and Octavia Butler scholar, a facilitator, and a doula living in Detroit. She's the author of Octavia's Brood, Emergent Strategy, and now Pleasure Activism, which has recently become a New York Times bestseller. Hey, congrats, Adrian! You can also hear Adrian on the podcast that she creates with her sister Autumn called How to Survive the End of the World. Amita Swadheen is one of the contributing writers to pleasure activism and is also an educator, a storyteller, activist, and consultant dedicated to fighting interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Her commitments and approach to this work stem from her experience as a genderqueer femme woman of color, a daughter of immigrants, and from years of abuse by her parents. You can check out Amita's work at mirrormemoirs.com. And part of Amita's power in this conversation and in the world is the detail in which she confidently discloses about her abuse. If you've seen her essay so far in Pleasure Activism, then you already know a lot of those details. And they include references to sexual violence. And so if you're not up for that right now, that is so fair. And I recommend that you choose instead to go back to episode 10 on this podcast to listen to Adrian talk about her previous book, Emergent Strategy. And that episode is an alternative option to this one. You'll hear us talking a lot in this episode about our new book club. And this episode is the kickoff of the Healing Justice Podcast Book Club. 
We hope that you will join us in picking up pleasure activism and reading along with us. We are partnering with AK Press, who is a radical publisher and distributor of this book and all of Adrian's books. And Adrian, or AK Press rather, is giving us a little gift which is special just for our listeners. If you go to their site, akpress.org, you can use the code PODCAST to get 15% off your purchase. So you can buy pleasure activism, you can throw any more books that you want to read into your cart and get 15% off with the code PODCAST. It's pretty cool. Also in this episode, you'll hear us explain more about how book club works and what it will entail, but you can check it out for yourself at patreon.com slash healing justice. The people who are members of our book club are going to be reading the book together, getting access to a deeper discount at AK Press available just to our book club members for 30% off everything you buy there. And we'll also be sending out a discussion guide, light and easy, for if you want to get people together either in your organization or in your living room um, to gather to talk about the book. And at the end of the summer, once we've all had a chance to read together and host a local gathering, if you want to, no pressure, we'll also have a virtual hangout online where we'll get to ask questions to Adrian and Amita. Monique Tula will also be joining us. And it's going to be a really fun and sweet time for those of us who have dove deep together with the book to get to ask more further questions to the authors and hang out with them. So if you want to join our book club, go to patreon.com slash healing justice and join any level at the book club level or above. They all include book club membership and we're so excited for you to be with us. So whether you're able to join us for book club, whether you already have this book or are going to check it out from your library, or whether you don't have it at all, uh, this episode is an awesome way to dive in and really hear from Adrian and Amita what pleasure activism is all about. So let's listen into that conversation. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Amita. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hey, hey. I'm so glad to be with you both and so excited to have not one, but two of the contributors from Pleasure Activism uh, speaking together at the same time. And um, y'all saw, I know, Amita, you were following over the past 24 hours, all of our folks on Instagram sending in questions and just engaging so much with the topic of pleasure and the topic of pleasure after childhood sexual abuse. And there, I mean, Already, I'm just like, we need to do a year-long series about this. I mean, this is such an incredibly rich topic. Um, and I just want to start with you, Adrian. Will you tell us a little bit about, like, why this book, why this topic now? What does pleasure have to do with the our movements for social justice? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for making this a book club selection, a book club offering. Um, it's really been the joy of my life that people are engaging in my books in very organic and collective ways. Um, like it makes it feel like a less lonely creative experience to think about. It. It's like, Oh, this is going to be something that people are playing with together. Um, so pleasure activism, you know, after I finished, um, uh, to me, pleasure activism goes with Octavia's brood and emergent strategy. And so I keep trying to make those connections for people that like Octavia's brood is all about 
understanding that all organizing is science fictional behavior and that it's our right to be visionary and it's our responsibility to vision ourselves into futures that are actually sustainable and and beautiful and powerful places to live um, and practical, you know, places that work for us. Um, and then emergent strategy to me was um, a way of understanding how, how we actually create change, like how the complex systems that we are a part of can be shaped by us. And then there were a lot of places I was interested in going after I finished that book. Um, but this essay by Audre Lorde called The Uses of the Eroticist Power um, has continuously resonated with me. And it felt like this really important piece of what's missing right now, which is that um, pleasure gets taken away from us by oppression and by trauma. Um, and we start to believe that there's a limit to what we're allowed to experience or what we can experience. Um, and I think we even, we get just cut off from our bodies and cut off from being of the natural world and being of a pleasure body. Um, and one of the things that Audre Lorde asserts is that those of us who are able to awaken the erotic in ourselves are able to reclaim um, our agency and we refuse to settle for just suffering and struggle as our lives. And what I saw around me um, in the facilitation work that I've done and the um, movement work that I've done is this uh, you know, commitment to suffering, um, a commitment to overwork, a commitment to martyring ourselves in the name of saving the world and a way that we're losing touch more and more with what it is to even be alive and what makes us want to be here. Um, and that we're not practicing with each other, like practicing what it means to be in communities that are a pleasure to be a part of, that we're not practicing with each other, uh, making liberation actually a pleasurable experience. So, um, so this book is born out of all of that noticing and there's a lot of stuff in there. We talk about sex, we talk about drugs, we talk about fashion, we talk about humor, uh, we talk about raising children who are in touch with their bodies and with pleasure. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle of pleasure activism. And again, as with everything I do, there's an experimental nature to it. Like I'm sort of learning it um, along with everyone else. Um, I love this line and how you have uses of the erotic published in the in the book before we read yes. what's been added. Um, and this line just like got me today um, when Audre Lorde says, giving into the fear of feeling and working to capacity is a luxury that only the unintentional can afford. And the unintentional are those who do not wish to guide their own destinies. And I see you added something to that at the bottom about what else you consider the unintentional. Would you say a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, to me, so much of what she's offering to us is how do we actually give in to living intentional lives and shaping our lives? And that so much, you know, I'll show share with you too. There's a section where she talks about opening up these pallets of margarine <laughs> um, and how it's like, oh, how do we intentionally spread our awakening? How do we intentionally spread our desire? How do we intentionally spread our power throughout our entire systems? And what I, one of the things I love about it is it's not just this idea of, of sex, right? Um, that it's like, it's everything that we get scared of, everything that we're taught to be afraid of, like afraid, we don't get to feel, you know, we don't get to feel anything other than being a cog in someone else's system. And 
you know, the control mechanisms of that. And I, I there's just something to me so powerful about what she's returning to us. Um, and, you know, it's so powerful that I was like, I think I should write a whole book <laughs> about this thing. Um, yeah. Amita, what was it like for you to be asked to be a contributor? And have you been thinking of your own work as related to pleasure? Is this like a, a, a reframe and a transformation for you too? Or how does it fit for you? Oh, two different questions. So I'm going to pull those <laughs> apart. Um, I am a huge fan of Adrienne and oh. her work in the world. And uh, just so happy that the world keeps bringing us together through these organizing spaces. Our, I think our work is very integrally connected uh, and, and and so are we as queer women of color and through our experiences uh, as humans that I know a little bit about Adrienne's story. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's just so many parallels and intersections and we share so much community. So yes. I was thrilled. I was thrilled and humbled and honored that you thought of me for this work. Thank you, Adrienne. Um, to your question, Kate, about do I see my work as uh, in this tradition of pleasure activism, yeah, that's not a new way of thinking for me. Um, although I love the framing of the book and it resonates deeply. I actually have a course that I developed a couple of years ago, two years ago called Power, Pleasure, Purpose, uh, specifically coaching and guiding survivors of child sexual abuse together through 12 weeks of learning and practice around um, those words, around what power is for us, around what pleasure is for us, around what purpose is for us because I get asked so much as a publicly out survivor of specifically childhood rape in my household, um, how did I start to enjoy my life? Because I think for anyone who follows me on social media, it's it's really lovely that I think I'm at a point in my own life and the way that I live that people can see that I'm enjoying myself, because truly I am. But I, I wasn't always. And uh, I think 20 years ago, I would have asked if the, you know, if we could time travel, and I had seen my current self at twenty, I would have absolutely wanted to know how the hell did you get there. Yes, so that's I right. understand why I get all those questions, and uh, because there are, you know, there's forty two million survivors of child sexual abuse in the United States alone, and that's a conservative estimate. So a lot of people ask me the same questions in DMs and Facebook messages and one on one at conferences, and the moment I step off of stages and. I'm not a therapist. I'm an organizer and a healer, among other things. And so I I feel like my work in the world is trying to create tools to help people understand how I got where I got and to help them activate to their own process of living with intention and purpose and finding joy and finding pleasure despite the ways that they have been wounded. You know, that that our wounds don't preclude the possibility of a joyful pleasurable, enjoyable experience as a human. And can I just say, Amita, like for me, there was just no doubt in my mind that you had to be in this book and that you had to be in it in the way that you are, like very much telling that story. Um, And I'll say that for me, this past year has been a year of um, a lot of very vulnerable unveiling of my own childhood traumas and You've been such a beacon of light in that work. Um, And I remember the conversations that I have gotten to have with you where I was just like, you know, just kind of that gasp of like, God, I can't imagine being able to tell, tell the truth that clearly. I can't imagine being able to feel it that clearly in myself and, and then choosing pleasure. And I feel like this is the secret 
to me is that like, oh, at a certain point you recognize like, oh, this is a choice. Like there's things that have been done to me that I'd had no choice over. And then now I recognize that. And now from that moment of recognition, I I, I begin to have agency. And I really feel like you explore that so beautifully in your piece. But it's just like, oh, there's there's this moment of not having agency and then there's a turning and turning towards the rest of my life. And I feel like you have figured out a way to have such integrity of bringing your past life and your future life, right? It's like you don't leave behind that past, but you let it be a catalyst for what you're here to do. And yeah, anyway, it's a great honor. Oh, thank you. It means so much to be seen by you. Thank you. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Um, it does feel like to me in, in my own experience and then also in the questions that of, you know, friends who knew this interview was happening this week or all of the people who wrote in on our Instagram account with questions, there is probably the biggest through line to all of the questions about pleasure activism, what are based in kind of like a suspicion of pleasure. Uh-huh. Like <laughs> a lot of questions about like, well, how can we experience pleasure without it being addictive? Yes, yes, a lot of, yes. A lot of questions about how like, well, sometimes this work isn't pleasurable. Like sometimes we have to do like shit that sucks and isn't fun. And like yeah. um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And so how do we reckon with that? Or That's great. people also saying like, if, you know, like how will we know that we're in touch enough with the suffering or that we're working hard enough? And yeah. it just felt to me like we're getting to read all of these in a row. I was like, oh, we're so deeply suspicious. Like, it's like <laughs> yes. we don't trust ourselves that if we're like feeling better, we'll still care about other people. Like, I, like it's so powerful, right? Well, I mean, I, I think of it, a couple of different things happen. Um, I get a lot of the same thing. Like when I mentioned pleasure activism to people the first time, it really is sort of this like eyes go wide, like bacchanalia, you know, like it's like, so it's just like total, you know, and I'm like, no, it's not called hedonist activism, right? Which is like <laughs> a whole other thing that does exist, which, you know, to me, so these these definitions are important, right? Hedonism is all pleasure, no pain, no, you know, no Nothing, not no pain in because if you want pain, that's that can be your pleasure. But it's basically like only doing the things that feel good and not doing anything that doesn't feel good. It's not hedonism. Um, pleasure is, you know, the definition of it is really about joy, satisfaction, and contentment, and that can be really connected to the sexual realm, but it doesn't have to be. And that felt important to me because I, I'm like, I think so many of us are just so repressed when it comes to actually being able to feel our own pleasure, that even talking about it for most people will bring a blush um, to the face and it will bring a sense of like, like that's the forbidden. And it's like, no, like what kind of socialization makes you feel that this body of yours has been wired for pleasure is actually not allowed to have any pleasure? Like that, to me, I'm just like, no, what happened? Something got broken along the way. Um, and then on the piece where people are like, well, then if I feel pleasure, will I remember that there's still suffering? To me, it's like suffering is, is that's, that's, you know, one of the four noble truths of our existence on this planet, right? Like I really, that, that piece from Buddhism resonates with me that I'm like, I think that that is part and parcel of being a human being is that even if you have every kind of pleasure imaginable and someone's just feeding you grapes all the time and fanning you with feathers or whatever you like, um, you know, you're still going to die. And like the people you love are still going to die. Um, 
you're still going to be living on a planet that is experiencing a climate crisis. And I don't think you're going to forget that just because you had a great orgasm. To me, it's like you're going to have more resilience for turning and facing that suffering and being like, life really matters if you're also in touch with the part of life that feels amazing and not just the total catastrophes that are happening. And I have not yet met anyone um, in my organizing work world who was like, you know what? Pleasure is just better and I'm just, you know, fuck organizing. <laughs> like People sometimes get to that breaking point where they're like, I need to take a break and go away. And then they find their way back. They find a way back because um, I do think that once you have awakened to what's happening in the world, um, it's, it's hard to fully turn away from it, but you have to find your right role. And I think too often we're prescriptive. Like there's just one way to be woke. There's just one way to be like, paying attention and trying to change the world. And it's like hardcore door knocking organizing. And I'm like such a fan of hardcore door knocking organizing. And I think that everyone in every possible role that you can play in society needs to be thinking like a radical person about that role and how to do it in the most radical ways possible. If you're a banker, if you are working, you know, in retail, like any place you are, like to me, like retail is a great example. I'm like, that's a place where you could bring a ton of pleasure to people by helping them think more radically about how they look and feel inside of their clothing, right? Rather than, you know, just going through the motions, right? It's like, you can tell people how beautiful, how powerful, how amazing something is. You know, like there's just ways of showing up um, in every position. And so I think about that a lot. And then I think the final piece I want to say on this is like people should try the practices on and see what they notice for themselves. Because I noticed that, that I'm like, it's one thing to talk about it theoretically, like theoretical pleasure might be really terrifying because folks are like, that means I might lose control. That means that I might um, actually like feel something. And if I feel anything, I might be totally overwhelmed by how I can feel everything. And so I'm just like, well, just dip your toe in, you know, dip your toe into one practice, like get naked and really understand what that looks like or dip your toe into listening in a different way and just see. Um, so far, the feedback from people who are actually doing the practices is wildly positive. That's so real. It's one thing to talk about this stuff theoretically, and it's quite another to actually just start bringing it into your life in a regular way. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, people should also think about like who taught them about pleasure, right? Because I'm like the idea that it's it's scary or that it can't coexist with other parts of life. Like someone taught you that and probably someone who benefits from you thinking that way. And I always ask myself that. I'm like, did capitalism teach me this thought? <laughs> Does capitalism want to keep me from believing that I deserve to feel good or I can only feel good if I buy something from, you know, Amazon.com? You know, like who, 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 who got me all hemmed up to forget that like my body is a complete pleasure system and that like literally at any moment I can drop in and start experiencing more pleasure just by tuning into how I feel and making adjustments from that place. Like it's total, it's a deep freedom to recognize that, to be like, this moment can feel good. It can feel better. And then, you know, not everything. I love all oh, I think the other piece you said was like, well, not everything feels good. Like some shit has to feel bad. And I'm like, you know, even that, I think collectivizing most things makes them more pleasurable. Like I used to be like, oh, I hate cleaning. You know, I don't want to clean. But I'm like, if I'm in a group of 10, like highly competent people who are like, can we just take 10 minutes and like clean this up? it's a pleasure. Put on Beyonce. It's an, a super pleasure, right? Now we're just like twerking while we work. And it's 
fine, right? Like it's, it's great. We're having a blast and we're taking care of each other. Care is such a pleasure. I love that because we did have um, a couple weeks ago, we had to do this thing for the podcast where we had to download a, an old file for every single episode, which is like 85 episodes, and convert it into an MP3 and then re-upload oh. it one by one. And it was something that had been like very tedious, hanging over our heads forever. And um, one of our volunteers, Park, came in and was like, I'm super into pleasure activism. Like, how can we do this in a way that brings pleasure? Okay, Park, you better come through. We talked about, like, (laughs) the pleasure of, like, actually just doing a really concrete, repetitive task and just being like, "Mm, I know that I'm accomplishing this. Like, seeing all the things get checked off, right? Like, we sat in a beautiful space. Like, it was so fun to take this thing that felt, I mean, this is such a tiny example, but, like, something that, felt hilarious to even call into question that pleasure was possible in this very like rote administrative task (laughs) and just like find ways right yes and um I do feel like with the with the capitalism suspicion it's it feels like a little bit of a double-sided piece because there is Mm -hmm. the capitalistic piece where it's like we have been taught to to never feel satisfied and so we have to Mm -hmm. keep reaching Mm -hmm. and then there's um if it, yeah, it feels like there's like a another lie on the other side of that trap of like, well, we have to keep reaching. But then also the idea of like leaning into our own pleasure is sort of uh-huh. can be perceived as like individualistic or like. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's not just perceived that way. Like that's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how pleasure access is usually structured. Right. So, you know, for me, if I think about like, how did I feel pleasure in my 20s? I was either buying drugs by myself that I would like try to find secret ways to use um, and or I would go and buy an individual massage. And sometimes people would gift me that, like here's your massage, go feel better and then come back here. And um, I see that happen a lot in our movement spaces where people are like, I'm burnt out. And it's like, okay, go away by yourself on a sabbatical. And it's not woven necessarily into the fabric of our collective joy and collective pleasure. So um, a good example of this is a few years ago, I got invited to a writing workshop called Hedgebrook that's off the coast of Seattle. And I went and it was so incredible. It was just like quiet, beautiful place to write and be nourished. And then I came home and I couldn't shake the feeling that I was like, everyone should have this. Like all the people I know, all the women and binary people here in Detroit, I'm like, we should all have access to this. And like, it's harder for me to enjoy the pleasure if I don't also know that people... That, that all these other people that I care about and love could have access to it. So I turned my home, once a month, I turned my home into like a, a writing retreat center and people would come in. I would run a bath if someone wanted to use the bathtub writing station. We would bring each other like food and take turns sharing that, set our intentions together. Um, and then, you know, I really do have a good, a beautiful home to be in. So we would just spend time in, in my home. And it was so beautiful every single time. Like actually talking about it is like, I need to bring that back. But it was so beautiful to just be with each other and be attending to each other's pleasure. And I recently was at this conference, Amita and I were there together building accountable communities. And the Harriet's Apothecary group, um, Harriet's Apothecary had set up a healing space. And when I got there, there was so much that was healing about it, but it was also like, it was a pleasure space. There were 
ways to lay down and, and roll around and take a nap and things you could rub your body on and sensuous oils and smells and ways to draw. And there were just so many things that I was like, oh, this is nourishing and healing because it's pleasing to be in this space. It smells good. It feels good. It feels calm. There's like some kind of solfeggio music stuff playing. Like it was just like so yummy and delicious to be inside that space. And I'm so grateful now that it's becoming more normalized to have spaces that are healing spaces. But I love that when you walk into them, if they're set up right, you instantly feel just the pleasure of your own aliveness and the option to drop into a different level of awareness. I'm like, to me, those are the places where I'm like, it's not it's not all about going away from everyone else. Sometimes that's necessary. I'm a hermit. I'm a Virgo. I need my, I need, I, I always tell people like, because I'm so verbose and outspoken when people interact with me that they think I'm very extroverted. But I'm like, I need about 80% of my life to be alone time to make that 20% really vibrant and rich and, and authentic, you know, that I'm like, I, yeah, I want to be here with you. And even that to me is part of the pleasure of the collective. Because I'm like, if I take care of the alone time I need, it makes me a really quality part of the collective. That when I show up, I'm like, I don't mind asking the first question. I don't mind listening to 20 people's pain. I don't mind doing the work that it takes to be a part of this collective body because I have done the work it takes to be a part of my own body in a healthy and pleasurable way. Hey, y'all. This conversation is so good and is just warming up. I just wanted to drop in to say a little bit about Book Club since we are launching this new configuration with this episode. We have been strategizing for the past year, really, and listening really deeply to how people want to be more in relationship with each other through this podcast. And Book Club is our first effort at doing that. It's our effort at creating possibility for you to gather locally if you want to, um, creating more clarity and structure around continued study and engaging with these ideas in your organization or group uh, or group of friends. And we're really excited to be providing this container that you can engage with if you want to, um, to study together. It's a really important part of our commitment to liberation to be in study and learning together. And that process can also feel good and be pleasurable. That's part of why we're starting with the book Pleasure Activism. And it's also why we're giving you resources through book club, but also keeping it light. Saying, okay, in month one, buy the book using this deep discount code. In month two, we'll send out a discussion guide that's nice and short and brief so that if you decide to have people over and talk about the book, you have some guideposts to do it that were recommended by the author. And then in the third month, we'll all hop on to a virtual hangout to talk directly with the authors and ask questions. You can tune in alone. You can gather your friends who've been talking about the book to tune in together and just really like have fun. It's not going to be a super formalized discussion, but a chance for us to pile in and ask questions and engage and hear funny stories and uh, really just engage with the with the text and the ideas. And so we would love for you to join us. For me, this is an amazing way just to help me also commit to reading and know that I'm reading with a bigger family 
that's all reading the same thing at the same time. Um, and so you can find out more about joining at patreon.com slash healing justice. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash healing justice. And look at the different membership levels that are posted there. Any membership level starting at the $10 book club level and then going up, including our reciprocity level for practitioners who are using this work regularly, um, our level for redistribution, which is a level for folks um, who want to give and know that we are actually redistributing uh, 15% of the funds raised there to grassroots groups working on healing justice that are less visible and less funded than we are. And then also our donor circle level for folks with access to money and class privilege to be redistributing that to fund this project that's nourishing movement infrastructure. So Book Club is contained in each of those levels starting at the $10 and up. We hope you'll consider joining us there as a means to support the ongoing work of this podcast, the vast majority of this work being free to everyone, and then get to join a little exclusive thing, the first thing that we're doing that isn't free, which is this virtual hangout and the discussion guide around book clubs. So I hope you'll join us in this experiment to create uh, some benefits and togetherness and commitment around our community as we continue to share the vast majority of our work uh, for free at scale. So it will be so fun to read with you. Patreon.com slash Healing Justice. Join Book Club and read Pleasure Activism with us. And if you decide to go and buy it on your own, you can go to akpress.org and use the code PODCAST for 15% off your order. Let's go back to the conversation. How has that journey been for you, Amitha, in, in being in your own body? And feel free to tell us anything you want to about your essay and your work. Mm. Oh, my God. It's such a long journey. <laughs> um, you know, one of the biggest challenges for me as a young survivor when I was a teenager and I was starting to sit in the, uh, well, you know, I'm 40, so I come from the day of card catalogs. Can I just say catalogs. 40s, by the way? <laughs> yes. 40 has been amazing. I want that for everyone. I, you know, I mean, not just from a function of getting older, but for when you turn into yourself and you start to pay attention to what your spirit is calling for toward liberation and what that looks like for you, and you do that work consistently right. and it's hard work, you get to reap the rewards mm in such a beautiful way by the time you reach 40. So I, I have been enjoying 40 very much. Um, so, gosh, I started the work of trying to consciously heal a long time ago. I would say when I was 13 is when I started to do sense-making of what I had just lived through in terms of, you know, surviving years of rape and sexual assault. Yeah. But what, what I tried to talk about in my essay is that just... I feel very lucky to be someone who has a spirit that is very hard to break. Um, and I didn't choose that. I'm just sort of wired that way. I also am an extrovert and I also have this gift of connection with other people. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of what Adrian talks about around pleasure being the ability to connect with ourself, I that was what was taken from me. 
you know, I started to be harmed in utero because my father was very violent to my mother before I was born and while she was pregnant with me. Hmm. And so a, a lot of the books that exist, when I was 13, part of my first step on my healing path was I was a library kid. You know, I come from a small town in New Jersey, right outside New York City that had a very blue collar vibe to it. And we had one library in the town and it was between, um, it was right across the street from the middle school. So it was being Asian American and the daughter of very strict conservative, a very strict conservative Republican Asian American father, uh, anything, yeah, anything associated with school was socially sanctioned. And so that became my escape very much. And I enjoyed reading very much. And that was, it was just a, a portal to other worlds. And and also knowledge mm. to better equip myself with. And this was before the internet, right? I was 13 in 1991. So yes. I had an encyclopedia from like 1986 at my bookcase at home, and that wasn't very helpful. <laughs> so I I went to the library and looked through the card catalog to find the word incest and spent an entire week, month, I'm not sure how long it was, kind of furtively lurking in that aisle and read every single book that they had in the library or skimmed at least. And what was not useful about that experience, there were many things that were useful in terms of language and understanding, oh, there's names for what I just went through. Okay, there's words to put to this experience. But most of the anthologies were written by white women, and I'm obviously not a white woman. And also... Um, a lot of the healing from trauma books from age 13 well into my 30s, still to this day when I pick up books around trauma and the body and memory, so many of the frames that we are given are not useful to people like myself because they say things like, go back to the time in your life before trauma. We're going to help you remember through our practices what it was like before. And that's not apl applicable to me. You know, for me, learning my body and learning what my spirit wants and needs and figuring out pleasure has been intertwined with figuring out how to survive a lot of pain and violence. Those experiences were happening concurrently for me. And that's what I tried to unearth in the essay yeah. in Adrian's book is like one morning I would be raped before I went to school at six years old, but then I would spend recess with my best friend learning new hand games and Chinese jump rope. Right. And those things happened on the same day. And that was every day for my entire childhood. Right. And so, you know, I had to do a lot of work when I started consciously healing to pull those experiences apart. Right. And to understand where am I in all of this? Because I'm not what happened to me. Although I have been shaped and defined by what happened to me, that's not who I am. I am someone who, as a little kid, enjoyed Chinese jump rope and enjoyed braiding hair and enjoyed catching frogs and enjoyed riding my bike down steps yeah. <laughs> and enjoyed being, you know, um, feeling my aliveness. And a lot of it also, a lot of my time was spent dissociating. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. while there were experiences of pleasure and there were experiences of violence, there was also a lot of just not being present um, and escaping because I, obviously I was so little, I just couldn't process and hold what was actually happening to me. And so that also, while it helped me survive, and I'm so like, high five, little me, you know, we did it, got through that. Um, 
it's not a useful way of being in the world if you truly want to experience pleasure. You can't experience pleasure if you're not present. (laughs) And so a lot of my work to experience pleasure as an adult has been learning to be here and learning to feel, you know, a lot of the people that I work with who are other survivors of child sexual abuse come to me because they want the bad feelings to stop. That's right. And they want to just feel good. And I have to tell them and sit with them and say, you're not alone in this, but please understand that healing is not about learning to feel good. Healing is about learning how to feel more. That's right. You know, it's it's about learning how to feel. And Khalil Gibran wrote so much about this in the most beautiful way, but you know he talked about how your joy and your sorrow are interrelated, and yeah. the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy your spirit can contain. And that is certainly true in my life. I mean, I have been deeply violated as a human being profoundly for the first 16 years of my life. And as a queer person of color who's partnered with a black trans man and in community with so many black and indigenous and brown queer and trans people who I love and who I'm interdependent with, I continue to be traumatized, you know, by our collective reality. Um, But those experiences of trauma don't define my existence. They help me really, truly appreciate all of the gifts that much more. And I have to still feel them. I have to feel the sadness and I have to feel the despair and then learn how to release it. And how do I not let that define my daily reality? How do I not reach for my phone to scroll the news as the very first thing I do when I get out of bed, right? That's where the agency is. That's where where the choice is. I can define what does my waking up look like? I can define what does my going to sleep look like and everything in between, right? And that's where the power comes in to have pleasure. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's where I wanted to go so with it. So good. So good, Amita. Mm. I really love that. And I, I just have to reflect back to you that that talking about the duality of it all, to me, that's the that's the crucial piece of it. That right now it's kind of like we're choosing only one side of the duality. Like it's like if I'm going to be awake and alive, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be reading the news. I'm just gonna be on the suffering side of it. And I think there's something about like being a survivor coming through and being like, I already know how bad it can be. Like I spent a lot of time in that part of it. And so if I get a choice, I'm gonna choose to increase the pleasure part of it. And I think there's something about not just in the timeline of our own lives, like you and I, you know, in our 40 years, like are we balancing inside that 40 years, the suffering and the pleasure, Um, you know, not just day to day, but like if the first 16 years had a ton of, of pain, you know, have the last 16 years had, you know, a ton of pleasure, like something in that realm. But then I also always have to bring in Alexis Pauline Gums and thinking about it on the ancestral realm. And and I wanted to say, you know, you spoke about that at the conference we were at, that it's just sort of like recognizing that our fathers are not just, um, you know, coming out of a vacuum with any harmful behaviors, right? Or that our parents, that our grownups, that the adults are not just coming out of nowhere. It's like if you go back a cycle into their lives, where is the where is the root of that harm? And if you keep going back and back and back, where is the root of that harm? And something I've been thinking lately is whenever I claim a pleasure, that I can also send that pleasure back along the timeline. And I, I just keep like I love this idea that I'm like, oh, I'm cold. I'm grabbing something that I'm passing back to an ancestor of mine who is picking cotton and who has not experienced pleasure in 
maybe years and I'm sending a moment of being like, all oh, right, the the wind just blew, <laughs> you know, over me. And there was a moment of like, there's some beauty here, right? Right. There's something beautiful that I can send back along that timeline or that can be sent forward to me along that timeline through all that trauma and pain as well. Oh, absolutely, Cosine. I feel like I'm in deep conversation and relationship to my ancestors through a number of healers who can sort of channel on that level, which I, I cannot, uh, but I have great relationships with people who can. And, and just in my own unearthing my family story in the sense-making, right? How does a life like mine happen? Uh, what are all the factors intergenerationally that caused that, mm. the good and the hard parts? Right. And I'm I'm very cognizant. I think something I want to offer, you know, from a global perspective, we, we often think so much only about the foundations of the United States, and that's critical because we're occupying this land. But as someone who's, I'm the first person in my entire lineage to be born outside of the South Asian subcontinent. And, you know, I think often in the U.S., what I hear people who are slave descended and also descended um, and indigenous, descended from the people who are indigenous to this land is like our ancestors knew how to heal uh, in circle process. Our ancestors knew how to deal with this violence and not perpetuate it against each other. And when I think about my ancestors, it's much more complex for me because in India, my my ancestors are from a Hindu lineage. We're mostly Brahmin. If you know anything about the caste system, that's like the, the top of the caste system. On my grandfather's side, my mom's father is Kshatriya, which is the warrior lineage. And the point is they're, they're all oppressors, you know, in our own indigenous social structure. I come from a lineage of oppressors. Now, my family was also directly, very directly on all sides affected by colonization. My maternal grandparents were freedom fighters mm. against the British and the Portuguese and were deeply uh, punished for it by the white people who were occupying their land. And on my father's side, what I talked about at that conference that Adrian is referencing is, you know, my father comes from the state of Punjab, which was uh, literally divided by the British as their parting gift to leaving the subcontinent. So lots of trauma that comes from white people that I can blame white people for. And when you look back at the scriptures around Hinduism, there is this moment about 2,200 years ago, uh, a little more than 2,200 years ago, called the Code of Manu. Uh -huh. And it is this moment that um, there's a codification uh, and a formalization of what constitutes Hinduism away from animism and more egalitarian ways of being and being in right relationship with the planet uh, toward a very patriarchal structure. And that is something that we invented you know, we, broadly speaking, my people, the people that I come from, uh, came up with that. We didn't learn that from white people. And the Code of Manu teaches us that when a girl child is born, she belongs to her father as property. Mm. And when she's married off, she belongs to her husband as property. And should she outlive her husband, she is the property of her oldest son if she has one. And that's my lineage, right? As a, as a female assigned Asian American child. Uh, when I was a little girl, I, even with all of the oppression that I faced, I still had more freedom than any of my female assigned ancestors for thousands of years. Wow. You know, my great grandmother was married off at 12 uh, and had 11 children that lived. I don't even know how many pregnancies she, she had. And 
I don't know how much agency she had in that, you know? And to now be someone who calls themselves non-binary and queer, to be partnered with a Black transgender man, to be living a life of pleasure on every level, you know, to be in this thing called diaspora that didn't exist for me one generation ago. These are all great, profound privileges in my own lineage. And I I don't take that for granted. That was all kinds of brilliant and gorgeous. Thank you, Amita. Um, And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in your experience and maybe also more generally, one of the questions that, that people wrote in with was about what are tools or what are some beginner ways to begin to stay more present and to like folks who are, who want to enjoy, who want to consent, who, who want to feel open up to feel more, um, but are unsure, like how to, how to stay with it or how to be able to do it in a way that isn't triggering. Um, and then also questions from partners or, or friends or fellow community members of folks, right? Like how can, how do we support ourselves to sort of stay with and feel in the present? And then how do we support each other to do that too? I will just start and please join in, Adrian. But yeah, for me, sensuality was much more important earlier in my healing journey than sexuality was. I had to learn how to be sensually present before I could be sexually present. And of course, these things are intertwined, I think, when you're having the what I would define as good sex. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, paying attention to things like what is the texture of this velvet bedspread? Or how do these satin pillowcases feel in my hands? Mm. Or how does the silk sari feel against my skin? What color do I enjoy looking at? What part of nature gives me the most peace and what part of nature pushes me to expand, right? I find that staring at the ocean makes me feel held and being in the desert pushes me to dream bigger. And I had to just figure that out by trying it. And that all of those experiences, knowing myself on that level, knowing myself in connection to the natural world, helped me bring something sensual to the table when I did start engaging in consensual sex as a young adult. So I would say part of the coursework that I do in Power, Pleasure, Purpose with survivors is giving people permission to explore their likes and their dislikes. For those of us who are tortured through our childhood, we just often don't know ourselves because we're spending all of our time surviving or disassociating. And somewhere along the way, by accident, having moments of fun with our peers usually, but I didn't really know myself very well when I left home at 17 and I had to learn who I was before I was able to share myself with people in any authentic, meaningful, intimate, connected way. Hmm. I love that. Um, like that, that is, is this long arc of learning the self and learning like, what is it I actually long for, want and desire? And then once I've learned that, how do I express it? The practice I'm going to be offering Um, to go along with this is really a lot about like, how do I learn what my internal sense of consent is? And then how do I articulate that? Um, But something that I wanted to speak to here is it's also a way of reframing how we understand our own identities. Um, Because I, you know, for a while I have felt like, oh, like 
the way that I'm supposed to identify my blackness or the way I'm supposed to feel inside of my blackness is the oppressions of my blackness, the suffering, the shared struggle of blackness, the shared struggle of being a woman, the shared struggle of being queer. And I think pleasure activism is also an invitation for people to feel their identities differently, um, to be like, oh, like my survivorship is a resilience ship that's a resilience inside of me. And that sensual, you know, that sensual awakening of like, oh, like not only did I survive and I know how to have an orgasm because I, I had a moment of like, you know, I can figure that out. I can use a vibrator and I can have an orgasm and I'm great. Now I know what pleasure is. And it was like years of like, no, I'm still numb. I'm still just kind of blasting my way through numbness here and having a moment of sensation and then getting back out of there very quickly. And it's taken patient lovers who were like, oh no, like it's not, you, you know, it's not just like kiss, kiss, you know, clitoris, right? Like it's like, how do you slow down and be an entire body that is a sensual body? How do you slow down and be a, a person who is awakened? And I think that if you can't do that, it becomes very hard to slow down in other places where it's important. So slowing down in a decision-making process with a group of people, slowing down to feel that there's an authentic yes before taking on a project, um, or slowing down and being able to feel into a no. Like one of my favorite practices lately is to be able to say no to people and still be connected to them. And I learned that through somatics work of like practicing and practicing and practicing like, oh, I have the right to say no. I have the right to feel my entire body and then like notice, even like I notice stuff now where I'm like, oh, like I'm like 70% of me really wants to do this, but 30% of me really isn't there yet. And there's no need to rush. I can wait. I can listen. Maybe that 30% has some wisdom that I haven't let come all the way up to my mind, right? I think about this a lot that um, before I understood that you could train yourself to feel again, that you could like really do practices that would help you awaken feeling again. Before I had that, there was a real sense of like feelings happen to you. Like feelings will overwhelm you. They come out of nowhere and they'll knock you off your feet and then you just have a feeling. And this idea that it's like, oh, like, I've been feeling my whole life, but it's been kind of an explosive accident or some kind of crisis. And now to be in a place where I'm like, oh, I'm having a feeling. Like, how do I start to get in right relationship with that feeling? What is it trying to tell me? If I feel fear, I used to push my fear down and ignore it. Now I notice that like my fear is almost always a form of intelligence that is trying to give me some guidance. Like, don't go there. <laughs> you know, don't walk down that alley or don't enter into that partnership with a white man, even though he wants to pay you a ton of money or don't, you know, whatever it is, right? Like there's <laughs> like, you know, different things that different people fear. But for me, my losing my integrity um, and losing my dignity have always been two of my greatest fears. And being able to be an authentic person in my life on a daily basis mm. brings me immense pleasure. And it's at the level of sensation and it's at the level of understanding um, so I fight for that for as many people as I can. And that's, I feel like what I'm fighting for in this text. Mm. <laughs> yes, I see that about this text. It's such a gift to mm. all of us, really. Mm. Thank you. So what will it look like in the moments, like in in the, the moments of togetherness in groups, in our movements, 
what will it look like and what does it look like now to really to center pleasure in our organizing? What are some examples that are outside of the bedroom when we're with our crew uh, working on what we're working on? Mm. I recently had an experience of going to dinner. Oh, actually, we were at the same dinner. <laughs> like Amita and I just basically spent all of our time together. And so all of our stories are together. It was great. And it was so great. But we went to this dinner and we were in this like really loud Italian kind of restaurant. And it was like so beautiful. But something that I noticed is that people kept ordering stuff and sharing it. And there was such, it was such a pleasure, it was such an intimacy of like ordering stuff and kind of passing it around for everyone to have a bite or everyone to take a taste. There was something really sensual and beautiful about that experience as we were all yelling at each other about political work that needs to happen out in the world. And like the under, underneath that was like this huge collective generosity. Um, that's one way it looks. Another example is recently at the Bold National Gathering, we had a Harlem Renaissance party and all these people who are such like hardcore serious organizers were suddenly there in feathers and sequins and, um, you know, shimmying layered dresses and just like a Harlem Renaissance vibes, you know, and everyone looks so elegant and beautiful and like you know, twerking in a flapper dress is just like, you just peak elegance. It's just an amazing thing. So to me, those times when we're like, we feed each other, we nourish each other and we play together are really important for our movements. And then a lot of what I covered in the book is like, how do we do that without crossing boundaries with each other? So how do we play together and still be able to give each other consent? How do we play together and still be able to say, um, actually, I'm not attracted to you or we don't need to go back to my room, um, but this is cool, you know, or whatever, you know, really being able to hold those lines. What about for you, Amita? Yes to everything you said. I, I end up these days facilitating and creating a lot of spaces for queer and trans and non-binary and intersex people of color who are specifically child sexual abuse survivors to come together uh, through the Mirror Memoirs Project. And we've done four convenings so far. Uh, we always have bubbles in the room, like 10 little containers of like childhood bubble Yay. blowers. Um and pipe cleaners and Play-Doh uh, and markers and construction paper. And there is something around making the experience of sitting through workshops pleasurable and sensual and tactile that feels connected to this conversation for me. You know, that I absolutely agree. The way I got trained as an organizer was uh, first by... Um, communist organizers from the Indian subcontinent mm. and then second by people in the tradition of Saul Alinsky and both of those models of organizing while I, uh, I draw upon some of the skills and analyses for sure uh, 20 years later, there's so much about the way that I was taught to be an organizer that was about suffering and about denying ourselves and about not sleeping enough and not connecting enough and just being a brain and nothing more. And Mirror Memoirs is absolutely one of the ways I create those spaces to say to myself, what would it look like to do the opposite? <laughs> That's so good. What would it look like to help people be playful and have that be a political act? What would it look like to help people be present and have that be a political act? You know, we take breaks to walk around outside. We take hikes together when we can for those of us who have the mobility access to do so. I live in Southern California, so I get to go outdoors a lot when I am home. Yeah. Um, but all of that feels connected 
to organizing work very much for me these days. Yeah. And that feels important. And, you know, when I think about the longest term, like when people ask me, like, what is your vision for the future? What is your vision for the world? Um, Pleasure has become the way that I think of like the how. Like, I'm like, I don't know what the structures will look like. I don't know exactly how the economy is going to work. But I do feel like one of the ways we'll know we're there is that the majority of us have easy access to the gift of pleasure that we're born with, um, that we haven't been disconnected from that. And um, it's something I pay attention to now when I get into a room full of organizers. It's like, are we in touch with our pleasure body? Do we think that we should feel guilty for feeling good with each other? Are we able to laugh together? Are we able to sing and dance together? Um, are we able to be really honest and just be ourselves with each other? It takes so much less work to just show up and actually be yourself. So Mm -hmm. things like that Mm -hmm. I'm paying attention to. I also want to offer a really important distinction for me that I worked on a lot as I was writing this essay for pleasure activism. You know, around the word pleasure, just if we didn't put some kind of vision toward liberation Mm -hmm. around that word and we just took it at its face value, the, the uncomfortable truth is a lot of people who rape children feel pleasure in that act. And so that's not what you're talking about in this book. And I think it's important for us to say that, right? To me, when I thought about what is this body of work offering and what is my essay trying to do within that, it is distinguishing between something that literally makes your senses feel good in a selfish way and that is at the expense of someone else versus something that helps you feel more alive and connected in the way that sure is all of our birthright, but not at someone else's expense because that could never lead us toward collective liberation. Mm -hmm. And what you're actually talking about, and I want to be, you've been very deliberate about this, Adrian, but sometimes I think when we talk about child sexual abuse, there's room for people to misinterpret it, Mm -hmm. is you're talking about how to make the collective work of liberation pleasurable. You're not talking about just, hey, let's all have more pleasure in our lives as human beings for the sake of pleasure. And it's such an important distinction. You know, uh, I know you use the phrase right relationship a lot, and I do as well from, I'm not Buddhist, but I have done a lot of my own learning around how to be present in my body through Buddhist meditation techniques, through Vipassana retreats and such. And you know, being in right relationship with other humans and with the natural world around us and with animals and everything that's organic on this planet is part of the practice of having more pleasure in our lives if if our goal is collective liberation and not simply some bodily sensation that feels good. Yeah, I'm really glad you pulled that, teased that out because it feels like one of the core things that I'm I'm still learning how to talk about to people and how to make clear that to me it's like, if we can't figure it out at you know the level between us, um, then it doesn't really matter. And I'm really glad you brought that up because this idea of people who are causing harm feeling pleasure is is a really um, it's a really fascinating one to me because I think so much of what they're feeling is power, right? Like power over, um, which can I think get misconstrued as pleasure. That I'm like, oh, I don't know that you can. Like, you know, I, I'm wrestling with it, but I'm like, I think you're feeling a rush of power and having power over someone and that that's what gets you off. Um, and there's some release there. Um, but then I'm like, I don't, I, there might be some satisfaction in that, but I'm not sure that there's joy and I'm not sure that there's like contentment in that. 
Um, but then I am like, when we're around each other, um, why are we why are we adding so much struggle and so much pain and so much hardship and so many um, barriers and walls between ourselves? And when we're around each other, what can we learn from what feels good in our pleasure, in our sex lives, in our drug lives, in our humor lives, in our friendships? What can we learn that we can bring into movement spaces? And how do we bring it in in a way that doesn't set us up for harming each other or crossing each other's boundaries? Um, and something else you know, that I've been really trying to push people on is like people misuse so much of these terminologies, right? So like um, people misuse the word harm all the time. You know, this thing, this harmed me, that caused me harm, whatever. Um, and I'm like, you probably felt discomfort. Like discomfort is really uncomfortable, <laughs> um, you know, and you might be feeling scared. You might be feeling um, like you don't belong someplace, but I'm like trying to figure out, like to me, I'm like the more distinct we can get about all these different feelings, the more we can tap into the ones that are actually pleasure building for us. So for me, I'm often like some discomfort is actually a necessary part of getting to the level of intimacy I need to feel pleasure. And that's true whether I'm with a lover or whether I'm in a, you know, a meeting or if I'm in a part of a larger community is showing up and being like, do I belong here? How do I, how do I take the risk to show my true self? Um, how do I settle into the fact that my whole self is actually accepted in this space? Um, how do I deal with the fact that if someone gives me feedback, they're not saying, get out of here. They're saying, here's a way that you could shape yourself or here's a way that you could be a part of this. Um, here's what's needed in order to, to be a part of the whole. And that to me gets, starts to get really exciting. Like that's, that's what I'm here for. It's like when I see a group where people all feel belonging, uh, the pleasure of that is unparalleled. And then transformation becomes really easy to access because everyone's like, oh, I belong here. There's enough support for me to actually have the kind of the kind of care and the kind of like connection that will actually yield uh, transformation and healing, actually being able to change, actually being able to be, you know, like what it takes to be able to acknowledge you're a caterpillar right? Like I'm like, oh, you have to be in like a good, warm, jungly, wet, nice place. You know, like I'm a caterpillar, right? Um, and the bravery it takes to go into the cocoon, right? I'm like, now I love cocoons. I didn't used to, right? Now I'm like, it's a pleasure when you get an opportunity to go into a cocoon and change on purpose. But it also requires you going into that chrysalis phase also requires you to have enough resources to move from loneliness into solitude. Oh, hell yeah. Mm. I'm like, I love the pleasures of being by myself too. And I, to me, again, I keep talking about it. I'm like, to be a part of the collective, what do you need? To be a, a part of a collective, a human collective future, what do you actually need? Mm. I think a lot of us actually do need time alone. We need mm -hmm. time to rest. We need time when we're not reading the news. Mm -hmm. We need time when we're sitting in a bathtub. Mm -hmm. We need time to be a human being and remind ourselves that like, oh, we're fighting for everyone to have time to be a human being. Mm. Mm. But it took me a long time to be able to spend time by myself without feeling traumatized. Mm. That's you right. know, and I, I how did you learn I was, that? What did you do? Good question. I mean, I spent most of my twenties not being alone, and I am a very extroverted person. I'm very. I also lived in New York City, where it's very easy to meet a lot of people at once, especially in your twenties. So I had 
you know, 20 people on speed dial at any given time that I could call if I was just not wanting to be with myself and my feelings because Uh I didn't have the inner skills yet to hold them. I mean, trust, I was going to therapy. I was journaling. (laughs) I was doing whatever I knew that I could do or maybe should be doing, but it was in... I've been thinking a lot about the technology of intimacy and how intimacy Mm -hmm. in and of itself is not always a healing thing because there's intimacy between a parent who rapes their child and that child. There is Mm -hmm. a, a corrupted kind of intimacy, right? And so how do we lean towards healing intimacy? Sometimes we we stumble into it, right? And that was my yeah. 20s all over the place. It was just spending time with people who were not harming me and who were offering me loving kindness and who I was offering loving kindness to. I mean, most of us, I'm going to say most, who were harmed in the way that I was harmed really struggle with codependency right. because it's easier sometimes to know how to care for someone else than it is to know how to care for mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Uh, that's me all over the place. So in my 20s, I spent a lot of time caring for other people and receiving care from them. And things got toxic so often, but they weren't abusive. Sometimes we would engage in abusive behavior because we didn't know how to have healthy boundaries. But I wouldn't It's not even that I would do it differently if I could. I didn't know how to do it differently and I have so much compassion because most of them were also child sexual abuse survivors, Uh, just numerically in queer and trans communities of color or in social justice communities. That's that experience of being raped as a child is often what lets us know at an early age that something ain't right with the world (laughs) and something needs to change. Um, And so it was a lot of those experiences of receiving loving care from other people that gave me the inner uh, resources that I needed in my 30s to mm-hmm. start spending time alone. And it was actually every heartbreak that I ever had yes. that broke me open um, to be more honest with myself, to see the pieces that were really there and put myself back together in a new iteration every time. And my last really big heartbreak was mm, five years ago now. Oh, and wow. that moment was like when I finally decided to do Vipassana meditation. So I, I read a lot about the neurobiology of trauma, among other things, and I have been since I was like 19 or 20, but I wasn't ready, even though I knew intellectually that Vipassana meditation could help me change my brain and help me be more present in my body. I wasn't ready to spend 10 days in silence with myself, even at a retreat with other people all around me until I was 36 years old. So sometimes it's just accepting that we're not ready even when we know something might help us and is good for us. And that has to be okay too. That's great. That's so good. Yeah. Um, There is so much here. And the good news is that there's a whole book. (laughs) Thank you for making a book, Adrian, so that everyone can be included (laughs) in a longer conversation of this kind. Yay. Um, And we're so excited. I'm just resonating so hard with you both and also feeling my my own desire to just be in community around a lot of these questions and Mm -hmm. the ways that tools like books or podcasts or um you know living rooms and kitchen tables or the community we experience in our organizations are all like tools to get us in deeper together Mm -hmm. and um the hope of this book club that we're holding and reading pleasure activism together is to be in more connection as we connect with these ideas and explore them for ourselves. And um, 
I want to give a, a shout out and a gratitude to AK Press for also helping build Yay. the container with us um, to hold this book club and, and, and the ability for people to come together around this book. And shout out that they're going to give our listeners a discount also to buy the book, which is very cool. They're um, so cool. I love And them. so, yeah. <laughs> How has it been for you, Adrian, in working with AK Press? You know, it's been really sweet. Um, the first project I did with them was Octavia's Brood. And Walid and I, you know, um, an imprint, the Institute for Anarchist Studies, reached out to us um, to see if we wanted to do the book with them. And it ended up being like a double partnership. And I've never really looked back. You know, I've never really thought about leaving them. Like, they're just like super supportive and radical. Like, I know that my politics are met and respect. So it's exciting to work with, with a press that's like, okay, mm. let's do it. Let's, let's bring these tools That's out. Awesome. I feel a lot of joy also in the opportunity that we're getting on this show to say, please buy this book from AK Press. Let's not give more money to Amazon. Uh, let's yeah. not do it. Buy it from um, AK. They're so, so sweet. They'll get it to you so quickly. <laughs> for folks who are listening, go to akpress.org slash book club. And you can use the code podcast to get 15% off to get pleasure activism and read up on more of the beautiful words that Adrian and Amitha have been sharing. And also maybe you'll throw Octavia's Brood and Emergent Strategy in the cart while you're there and see what happens. Um, so as we start to transition out, I know uh, there'll be an upcoming practice episode that's coming next week. You already gave a little nod to it, Adrian. But will you yes. let folks know if they tune into that practice episode what it's for? Totally. So um, throughout the book, there's um, something called hot and heavy homework. Um, and so what I'm going to do is bring attention to two pieces of hot and heavy homework that I think work well together. One is really deepening in around consent. And one is really learning how to use your voice again, especially if you have um, have been trauma traumatized or oppressed in a, such a way that really took your voice away or made you think that it was it was inappropriate to speak the truth in real time. And that piece is actually inspired by um, when all the Aziz Ansari stuff was going down. Um, I was reading that and just noticing like, I think there were like 20 different places in the story that was told where the person could have said something and didn't. And I was like, oh, I'm familiar with that. Like, I know what it's like to have gone through an experience and not said anything or said okay to stuff that I was really a strong no to in my body. Um, and so just being tender with that part of us that has to learn to use our voice again in real time to speak the truth. So that's mm. what we're going to be doing. Thank you. And yeah. there'll be an opportunity to, I'm so excited that you're coming back with us this summer, Amitha, to do the like book club digital hangout uh, where folks can come on and talk with y'all. And Monique Tula is going to join us there too, who also has an incredible piece on harm reduction in the book. Um, so thank you both for taking the time. It's been great to be with you. Thank you both so much for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amita, you're amazing. And um, I'm so grateful that all the Healing Justice podcast folks are reading this together. And I hope you all have a blast studying and learning and a lot of healing pleasure in your life. Ashe, thank you. Thank you. You just heard a conversation between Amita Svadin, Adrian Marie Brown, and me, Kate Werning. If you found this resource useful or want to join us for book club, 
Look up the ways to do that at patreon.com slash healing justice and check out all of our new reward levels, including our super fun book club, which is officially launched now. So welcome, welcome, welcome. You can download the amazing corresponding practice that Adrian offers us uh, in the next episode. If you're listening to this right when it comes out, the practices come out the week after the conversation, so hang tight. Uh, But Adrian offers us two beautiful practices from pleasure activism to invite us more into using our voice and exercising consent. And so join us for that practice. Links are in the show notes to find our email list and social media. You can find pretty much everything you need to know at healingjustice.org. And stay in touch. Let us know what you thought on social media. We're at Healing Justice on Instagram, at HJ Podcast on Twitter, and Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook. This episode was edited by Guido Giorgenti and mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you so much to Amita and Adrian for being with us, and thank you for being with us and exploring the ways in which your own pleasure and healing is deeply interconnected with the ability for our movements to be compelling and to grow to scale and to include so many more people on this journey toward liberation. Okay, y'all, big love. Talk to you next week.